Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today on the show, we are going to have Mark Morano, who is the creator of Climate Depot, of the new Energy Depot, and of the new uh, documentary film project, Climate Hustle. Now, first confession time. I did this interview, I think, over a month ago. I've been, for those of the regular listeners, you can tell, been a delinquent Power Hour host um, way slowed down on power hours. Now we did create power surge, which, um, has been pretty consistent. So you've got a lot of new content there. Hopefully that's uh, been enjoyable. We want to get back to weekly power hours. Um, I just have not mastered the art of having a book, writing a book, and then even, you know, all the aftermath of the book. There's just so much going on with that monster. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy, but it is the writing is done, so just wrapping up some stuff and now ramping up the marketing, um, you know, giving people previews, uh, you know, hopefully getting you know all kinds of goals that they want every employee in the fossil fuel industry to have one. Want it to be um, well, no more about that later. Anyway, uh, the fact that this interview was delayed does not make it any less timely or any less good. Part of the reason I wanted to have Mark on is that he, he's got a, a story that, that really spans decades about his involvement in the catastrophic climate change issue, which goes from being, as, as he'll tell you, uh, a reporter for Rush Limbaugh to being um, in the Senate. And you know, he, he, I think, has had an instrumental role in dramatically improving the debate. Now, his detractors would certainly uh, disagree with that, but you can... Uh, you know, you can judge for yourself by listening to him and by learning about his contribution. But I think it's it's a for sure it's a great example of of how to actually get things done. I think Mark uh, gets a lot of attention uh, from both sides because he gets a lot done. He knows he knows where leverage points are, and there's a lot to learn from him. So, without further ado, we will bring on Mark Morano. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now by Mark Morano, publisher of Climate Depot and the new Energy Depot. Mark, welcome to Power Hour. Thank you, Alex. Happy to be here. All right. Um, I'm trying to think of when I, I first met you. I, I think I was probably familiar with your work about 10 years uh, before I met you, I think I actually met you at a CFACT conference in 2011, and I, I think somebody warned me that you should never speak after Mark Morano because you're going to be perceived as boring and low energy. So uh, I have I have not yet had to do that, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know we saw each other at the anti-Keystone Pipeline protest in D.C. We were both, uh, I was covering that, and I saw you there. That was a pretty good turnout of the people against the uh, oil sands pipeline. And I remember what stuck out for me from that day, by the way, 
was the people that had stopping the pipeline by any means necessary, implying uh, eco-terror, and they were standing by that impression that they were going to do eco-terror if the pipeline was built, they were going to essentially blow it up. That's what the signs were. But yeah, and I've been familiar with your work for a while. I'm excited for your new book to come out. And of course, we had a great time up in New York on when we did Stossel's program together back in January. So Yeah, and then the exciting. Ezra LeVan, wow, it came, I realize we've been pulled together numerous times. I think one, one thing we definitely have in common is liking to get out on the street and engage the uh, protesters. Yes, and I think what's interesting when you go out, this is how I cut my teeth, if you will, in this issue, actually, and in journalism, was back working for Rush Limbaugh, the television show, back in 1992. I was just out of college, and my almost chief job for the Limbaugh TV show was to go out on the street and cover you know, what we could term as the wacky protest, everything from the, uh, uh, the feminist marches, the animal rights marches, to environmental uh, uh, protests out in Washington, D.C. I would go out and interview the people on the street. I went to the Million Man March, Farrakhan's uh, big event. And it was actually a great way for any journalist to cut their teeth because you get to see the, the raw messaging at the actual event. When you watch these things or just interview the leaders, if you will, uh, you know, the people behind, you know, the people that organize it or the people that are the spokesmen, you don't really get a sense of what's motivating the people behind it. And especially when it comes to environmentalism, it was back in the 90s that I realized the radical motivations of many of these greens. I remember specifically going to the Animal Rights March, which I covered for Rush Limbaugh, the television show. It must have been around 1995. And I, the, they had people there that were against building new roads at this animal rights march. And I remember being like, huh, like no new road building. I went up and I said, what is this all about? And they said they were against any construction of new highways and roads because they were worried about roadkill. And they had all these statistics about how many animals got killed by roads. Now, after talking to them for a while, I realized this was probably one of the more moderate elements because some people probably there probably wanted to repeal existing roads. But it was fascinating. And this is the kind of stuff the media didn't cover these. So many times I would go to these marches and there was just absolute, unbelievable, extreme, radical uh, signs, protesters, speeches. And the media would so unbelievably sanitize these marches for the nightly news that I couldn't believe it. It was then that I had on-the-ground training in uh, you know, media narratives and media uh, uh, cleansing of actual events. Yeah, that's fascinating. And just, just um, we're going right into exactly what I wanted to go into, just so the listeners have context. Uh, Mark has a, a fascinating story. And, and as you've already heard, uh, a lot of, of in-person experience and a lot of experience, whether it's working on Capitol Hill, engaging protesters directly, working with Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, all kinds of experience that we'll hear. So, uh, you know, for me, the, one of the most valuable things he can give us uh, is is his story. So we'll keep uh, we'll keep going into that. I'm curious when you um, if you had an impression of the difference between this uh, sanitizing of things, which actually reminds me of I heard a story once about how media used to conspire to grammatically clean up uh, Michael Jordan's press conferences. So he would make grammatical errors, and everyone would you know, sort of agree to not uh, you know to reword things. I don't know if that's true, but that that reminds me of somebody who is of course. Michael Jordan is, in case anyone doesn't know my view, a million times more admirable than, than these people who are not admirable. But I'm wondering if they accord the same luxury to the right. So if they're a right-wing protest, do they say of the most, quote-unquote, extreme elements, oh, yeah, they don't really represent the reasonable mainstream? Yeah, and, and, and in fact, that's exactly uh, true. I remember you can tell 
conservative or Republican politicians. And I was there at the beginning back, um, I mean, at the beginning of my career, 1992, in Washington, D.C., through the early 90s, there was no Fox News. There was no Drudge Report. There was no even national talk radio. Rush Limbaugh just got syndicated a few years earlier, and he was pretty much the only thing. But, but it was amazing just walking around Capitol Hill. There was the demonization, if you will, of libertarian, conservative ideas, anything that was against the state and against uh, you know, the establishment. And you could see it. When you walked up to a liberal politician, any Democratic senator, and I go to all these events, they never even cared who you were with, what you were at, who, what organization, because they never feared the media. At that time, any Republican you'd go up to, there was like they'd almost make a pain face because they knew they weren't <laughs> going to get the breaks you just described, the Michael Jordan break, if that in fact existed. They weren't going to get that from the media, so there was a hesitation. Well, over the time in Washington, all these other media revolution, if you will, Fox News came online in '96, and you know you had the Drudge Report, and then you had all the outbreak of. I used to work at Cybercast News Service and all the online news services and other outlets. And now I think it's a much fairer game in Washington, not so much with the establishment. I mean, the three networks, CNN, they're doing the same old, the same old media crap where they're still acting as though it's just the three networks and PBS. Uh, they haven't changed, but there's so much diversity now that I think there's a healthy fear on the part of many liberals and Democrats and progressive movements, if you will, in Washington now of general reporters when you walk up to them. There's no longer that monolithic state. And so that is a good thing. But I absolutely saw uh, the, the, if you will, the cherry-picking demonization of uh, you know, conservative, libertarian, anything that was pro-liberty at the time. They would always look for the extreme nut to discredit the entire event. And we see this even recently with Tea Party movements. You know, they're trying to tie Tea Party movements into racism, and they get some of the more maybe an extreme member, or you know, if they can find a, uh, you know, any kind of extreme sign, that becomes the lead with the media, because they're trying to fit their narrative. All right. So next is you're working for Rush. What what happens next? And how do you get into this climate issue? Well, good question. Um, well, first of all, behind that, in the 1980s, I actually volunteered on Ronald Reagan's 1980 campaign at the young age of 11 years old in September wow. of 1980. My, my older brother was working on the campaign and he became a part of the inaugural committee. Uh, and, and he was an advanced man for Vice President Bush back then. But I, as a volunteer, I would go every weekend, and I was doing. Got me started first of all in the media, which then led to environmentalism. I was doing Ronald Reagan sound bites, then Governor Reagan in September and October of 1980. I just about I turned 12 in October of 1980, and I was I would call all the radio stations around the country, and I, I had these big reel-to-reel, -reel, or actually they were cartridge machines, and I'd play sound bites of Governor Reagan for them to air. You know, Governor Reagan's economic plan, and it got my original you know interest in politics and the media. And then later on, uh, I realized that. Yeah, as much as I like the Reagan revolution, for some reason I was always weary of the environmental agenda of, say, James Watt. I remember being very specifically being taken in at the time by the rainforest issue. I always fancied my, one of my Wait, dream sorry, jobs. Who, who did you say? Uh, his old interior secretary, James Watt. I used to think his he over... Was, his name was James Watt? Wasn't it James Watt? Yeah, Reagan's first interior like the secretary. Inventor that's a really bad coincidence. Yeah, well, it could that. be James Watt. It could be Watt singular. You know, James Watt. And his big controversy at the time was he banned the Beach Boys from playing on the mall because he didn't consider them you know, pro-American or something like that. And he got a lot of feedback and Reagan overruled him. But the gist of it was he was, he was allowing logging roads through national forests and other things like that. 
And at the time, I, I always said to people, I was a Republican and everything except environmental issues. And I had been, if you will, duped by the environmental rhetoric. I remember watching National Geographic specials of clear-cutting rainforests and seeing the monkeys and thinking how sad they were that the rainforests were all disappearing. <laughs> and it really wasn't until 1992 that my eyes were open. I remember Dixie Lee Ray, the former nuclear, uh, I think she was a nuclear physicist, she was talking about when they had the Rio Earth Summit in, uh, in Rio in 1992 and the first, then George W. Bush went down there. I remember hearing her talking about how the Amazon scare was completely overblown, that it was the most intact forest, and that this was all environmental rhetoric. And I remember being shocked. So I remember starting to look into that. Well, lo and behold, uh, for Rush Limbaugh, I also did a lot of the Earth Day stuff. I remember interviewing uh, Christopher Reeve. Uh, who later you know, fell off the horse and paralyzed himself, a Superman actor, and he was a big animal rights activist. And I remember just thinking how, how imbalanced this whole movement was. And what happened really was I started, after Rush Limbaugh, I worked at a show called American Investigator, which was, for lack of a better phrase, a low-budget, 60-minute type show. And I started investigating the Amazon, and because I was able to have the, the good fortune of making several trips down to the Amazon and doing interviews, I ended up doing a documentary from doing a few segments on it, we turned it into a documentary, which was released in 2000. But it was the most shocking eye-opener uh, in terms of everything you'd ever heard or read. Because I had grown up, schooled in Sting's Rainforest concerts, all the Hollywood celebrities involved, National Geographic specials, uh, reading all the environmental rhetoric and believing all of this. And when I went down to Am Brazil... To even have environmentalists throw down the books and say, this is bullshit, bullshit. I mean, I remember the, the quotes and the guy threw the book down, all the claims about the disappearing rainforest. Turned out they were the most intact forests on the globe. They were over 90% intact. And then nine years after my documentary, the New York Times admitted it, that, they, that far from being you know, uh, endangered and uh, about to disappear, that the rainforest scare was overblown. For every acre of rainforest cut, 50 are being regenerated. And you can't tell the difference within seven years between the cut forest and the original alleged virgin forest. And so what happened was the uh, Amazon rainforest issue was the biggest eye-opener to me. And even now, the, 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 it's all proven correct that it was overblown because people are leaving the jungles, swamps, and wetlands. Uh, they like to call them rainforests, but they're actually swamps and jungles, and you, you go in them and you get immediately attacked by chiggers, and you get welts on your skin, and you're sweating, and you're getting eaten alive by insects. It's not romanticized, as you would imagine, from seeing a lot of the, the films. But the gist of it is people don't want to live in that, in these swamps and jungles. So they've moved to the cities. They're migrating. And so the slash-and-burn agriculture that was a huge problem, uh, or that was a, the big worry years ago, is now faded away significantly, and the rainforests have recovered. That was an example of me of an eco-scare that failed and that was overblown. So when global warming came along, and I, I actually started looking at global warming issue about 1996 or so. I remember when I was uh, 1997, when I was at the American Investigator Show, I actually started doing some research. And in 2000, I interviewed Jerry Malman, who, who just died actually last year, a former federal government climatologist, big believer in this. And I conducted a pretty hostile interview with him for, on camera. And then from there, I went on to be an investigative journalist and, and took the environmental beat and uh, started covering global warming a lot in the, in the 2000s and then moved on to the United States Senate Environment Public Works Committee in 2006. So what happened in that uh, interview? Well, the Jerry Malman interview was fascinating because I went in, I had actually got a whole bunch of skeptical talking points, and it became very contentious. 
Jerry Malman uh, stared me down and said, it looks like you've been uh, co-opted by the skeptics with those questions. I can tell by your line of questioning. It got very intense and hostile. And I ended up, uh, you know, it was a very long interview, but it ended up being a very big eye-opener to me because once you immerse yourself and you're on live, you know, camera like that, I started doing even more investigations to try to, to see about the claims that the Dr. Malman had made. And it made me a more and more convinced skeptic on this. And I ended up going out and doing, uh, going to United Nations conference. I went to the um, 2002 Earth Summit with my first UN climate conference. And that was an uh, eye-opener because I interviewed then-Governor Jerry Brown, uh, who, uh, actually former Governor Jerry Brown, who was, he was a former governor at the time, who literally said that the developing world can't emulate the Western world's prosperity because the Earth would need four or five more Earths in order for them to, uh, to, uh, to have that kind of development. And that was a huge eye-opener to me because here was the wealthy white Western world telling people of color in Africa they couldn't emulate our prosperity. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier that um, you liked getting out, you know, getting out among the movement members, not just not just the leaders, um, and and part of it is understanding their motivation. What was, as you met more of the uh, what we can call climate alarmists, what was your sense of their motivation? Well, interestingly enough, when I went, uh, I remember the, the the UN same UN conference. Uh, I went to a lot of the they called them the People Summits because the UN summit in many ways is very sanitized, very boring, very establishment event in terms of the climate. So I went to the People Summit, which was a summit of the activists opposing the UN. And what I found about that, I interviewed people who, um, a young college girl at the time, I recall this vividly, who I called Green Missionary. She was from Minnesota, and she was traveling the world, telling in Africa, traveling Africa, telling poor Africans living in huts made of dung and other lack of development that they were doing it correctly. In her words, the American way of life was pure bullshit and that they were doing it right, and that they didn't need to emulate our wealth and prosperity. And that's when it hit me that this is much more beyond science. It's much more beyond an ideology, even. This was bordering on some kind of you know, religion. And I think the late Michael Crichton you know, explained that very well. It's probably the modern religion uh, of, the, uh, of the urban liberal today is environmentalism. And that was fascinating to see that activism. And then later, Oxfam... The uh, develop the uh, environmentalist uh, international environmental organization went out to um, Africa and told poor Africans farming, uh, farming with farm animals, that they were doing it right. That the animal animals they were farming with was the correct way to go. They didn't need modern instrumentation, and it became codified even in international aid organizations that the primitive lifestyle was the correct way, and the earth couldn't handle more Western-style prosperity. So it was a fascinating, uh, eye-opening experience for me. Can you elaborate on codified in the international organizations? How do they really say it in those kinds of terms, that the primitive lifestyle was, was good? Or well, yes. Just... Uh, when I did, yes I, I talked to activists from Rainforest Relief. And Rainforest Relief, a guy named Tim Keating at the time, literally told me that people have been going around thousands of years without running water and electricity, and they were, human beings have existed just fine without it. They didn't need these modern conveniences, that it was a, somehow a perversion of our modern way of Western thinking that the developing world needs the kind of wealth and prosperity that we have. 
And I remember I interviewed Gar Smith. He was with the Earth Island Institute. And he actually lamented the introduction of electricity in Africa. Now, the reason he lamented the introduction of electricity is he said it, it, he didn't use this phrase, but it was essentially cultural genocide. And other Greens have used that when they talk about modern farming and chemical agriculture and, uh, and high-yield agriculture. We had Vandava Shiva of India use that phrase. I interviewed her at these UN summits, and she actually said it was cultural genocide when you change a farmer's way of life and go to modern ways. And they considered anything leaving the primitive to be that kind of genocide. Well, Gar Smith of Earth Island Institute was, a po- was, was lamenting the introduction of electricity in Africa because he didn't see them playing with their drums at night. And they were losing some of their cultural pride because at night now with electricity, their huts would be lit up. And in many cases, they would have radios or, God forbid, a TV on. And it was altering their, their tribal life. And he just thought it was the most despicable thing you could imagine. And this was, this was this hitting me straight on, head on in the face, especially as I went to these conferences. The more I reached out to these environmental groups, this wasn't uh, a movement that was out necessarily for the best interests of the developing world. They were out to tell and convince the developing world that they don't, want, they don't need to follow our footsteps and they don't need modern prosperity. And the sick part of that, and I remember I interviewed Dr. Patrick Moore of Greenpeace, specifically about the lamenting electricity, you know, these environmentalists themselves, they live with electricity. They live with uh, running water and email and fax numbers and all the stuff that they don't think the developing world will ever need. And I also interviewed the, in the UK a British charity. I remember they, they, had, they had students who they'd take around the developing world. They showed kids at the beginning of these courses when they took them before their trips They'd show African, African villagers with cell phones, and the kids would think, oh, this is a horrible picture. Uh, you know, why do these people have that? Our culture is being imposed. We're ruining their lifestyle. This is silly. Why do they need a cell phone? And then they would go on a two-week intense you know, a trip to Africa, and then afterward they'd see the same picture and they'd get their reactions, and they realized that these were people just like us who wanted progress, civilization, modern conveniences. They wanted uh, their children to live out of uh, uh, infancy. They wanted to lower childhood mortality. They wanted modern dentistry. They wanted modern sewage plants. They wanted everything we did. And this, uh, this group, uh, it was called World Right in the UK. It's still in existence. This, they used to do these, uh, this was a, I went and interviewed them in the UK. They used to do these trips with kids every, every year, and it was an amazing eye-opener because the kids were all basically spouting the green line about, uh, you know, the, the developing world doesn't need this, the Jerry Brown line. And then once they go there, they realize they do. And I, and I, in the Amazon, along the Rio Negro, I interviewed many of the indigenous people, and they actually said point blank, Sting, the musician who used to hold the Rainforest concerts, was in it for himself, and they didn't think he needed a, uh, they, didn't, they didn't trust him at all. And they wanted progress, civilization, I mean, to a person, and their whole world at that point they were open to it. Now, the environmentalists will tell you point blank, we should leave them alone, we shouldn't touch them. And I will, I will concede one point. We shouldn't necessarily go out and seek to change cultures. And by the way, they don't like the word primitive. If you use the word primitive, they get very upset. They consider that a pejorative Western mindset term uh, that uh, they don't want anything to do with. So, but, but if you go, um, if you, I don't think we should go out of our way necessarily to... to proselytize these people, but once they see progress, once they see civilization, once they see uh, a way out of back-breaking, primitive existence, uh, I think that most 
unbelievably overwhelming, you know, 99% are going to choose that as opposed to continuing to live, uh, for lack of a better word, a primitive existence. Yeah, I don't think a better word is necessary. I think that's the exact correct word. And I think there's a really racist view of, of culture here because it's as if the people in that region with that particular skin color inevitably have this set of habits and practices and most conspicuously this lack of reason, science, uh, technology, and progress. But of course, if we were to go back with any given race enough thousands of years, they lacked it in the exact same way. And so there's no inherent culture of any particular area of any particular race. There's fundamentally the presence or the absence of reason and then all of the fruits of reason. And so it's it's essentially telling them you shouldn't have reason, you shouldn't have science, you shouldn't have technology, you shouldn't have progress. And you know, going back to the issue of, of motivation, having dealt with these people myself, not nearly as much as, as you have in many ways, but there's no if you go to these these places and you've been to many more of them than I have, but I've been to enough, you can't look at desperate poverty and say, I love that. That's great. That inspires me. What you can do though is look at the people who are creative and who build things like industrialists, and you can say, I envy them, I hate them. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. They just they hate in the many ways they hate themselves, but they certainly hate their, you know, the achievements of reason, the achievements of what Ayn Rand called the men of the mind, because there's simply no such thing as a love for primitive uh, suffering, but there is a hatred for people better than you, and there is the desire to make yourself better by calling the good people bad. Yes, in fact, uh, part of my Amazon documentary was the idolization of the American uh, indigenous peoples as some sort of earth-friendly lover and something we should all aspire to and the ones that are doing it right, living in harmony with nature, the myth of the noble eco-savage. Well, I interviewed Robert Whalen, who was the author, actually, of that book, exact title, The Myth of the Noble Eco-Savage, and he was saying that every serious scholarly study shows this to be a total myth that they live in harmony with nature. But these were idolized. I mean, you know, American Indians ran buffalo to extinction and cleared out whole swaths of areas. Uh, but they're still romanticized and idolized as though, you know, they could do no environmental harm. I interviewed Walter Williams, the economist, and actually going to George Mason University, he was one of my professors. And that was uh, fantastic. But he said that the reason environmentalists and many wealthy Americans want these people, the developed world's people, to stay in poverty, as he said, they want to keep it like a giant zoo, where they can go and they say, hey, look, you know, like, almost like you're at a tourist at a zoo, say, hey, look at those people, they live in huts made of dung, isn't that neat? And you actually saw a rise of this in recent years, and I think the Wall Street Journal and New York Times did a whole profile on the rise of poverty tourism. Wealthy Americans, now I have to be careful here, but they get their kicks, if you will, going to places like Calcutta and others, and just viewing the poverty as some sort of you know, a um, an entertainment on their on their side, which which I can understand for cultural enlightenment to do that, but this is a it's a whole phenomenon. But to actually try to keep people in that. Another example would be James Cameron, the Hollywood director, Avatar and the Titanic. He went down with his co-star uh, of I believe it was Aliens. Um, what's the lady's name? The Sigourney actress, Weaver. Uh, Sigourney Weaver. He went down to Brazil to protest hydroelectric dams that would have brought running water and electricity to tens of thousands or more of Brazilians. He protested that, flew down on an airplane, got out, protested the development of this, which even the leftist government, Lulu da Silva, was for. And then he gets back with his Hollywood people, flies back to L.A. He's got two 
I believe it's in Bel Air, two next door mansions that he lived in, uh, massive mansions. He bought two next to each other, and he essentially lives in both. This is the kind of thing he goes down to a nation, people of color, tries to stop their development, makes all kinds of cases how they shouldn't have it because it would harm the environment, and then uses carbon based fuel, flies back home. This is the example of what we're getting, and, they, and, they'll, and they'll appeal to the we want to keep their traditional lifestyles going, we don't want to harm the local environment. All these these criteria which they themselves never uh, would have benefited from and that kind of hypocrisy goes on and on when Al Gore and Leonardo DiCaprio I believe it was the 2007 or 2008 Academy Awards they walked out on stage and as they did it, they had on the screen all these green tips the viewers at home could do and one of them was ride city transit and here we saw Al Gore <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio walking out with the tip of ride city transit this is flashed on the screen now, when was the last time Al Gore or Leonardo DiCaprio took a city bus anywhere uh, to, get, you know, to get to a destination? It never happened. Their idea, I think it was Charles Crottheimer at the time, was that their idea of public transit is a limousine that holds 12 people or something. This is the, uh, this is the, the deepest perversion of it. And we had Cameron Diaz and um, uh, Drew Barrymore in an NTV show called Trippin', which I did a whole profile of years ago, and they flew, they traveled the world by plane, helicopter, boat, all this carbon-based fuel. They went to places like Bhutan and all these third-world hellholes, and they praised it. At one point, uh, Drew Barrymore, the actress who was making tens of millions of dollars per film, was bragging. She actually said, I took a poo in the woods. It was totally awesome because they didn't have you know, running water, electricity, modern sanitation. They were out there on this little trip, but they thought it was the neatest thing in the world. They actually praised the government of Bhutan, which has huge human rights violations, one of the highest infant mortality rates, at least at, the time of, at, at that time, as doing it right on the environment. So it's a whole mindset. Almost the wealthier you get, the more environmentally active you get, the more dismissive and actually uh, promoting you do of primitive bare minimum subsistence lifestyles you become. You become like a champion of subsistence lifestyles the more wealth you create, the more wealth you generate for yourself, I should say. Yeah, there's a lot of fascinating aspects of that. All right, so you then uh, moved on to the Senate, right? Yes, yeah, so from the investigative reporter in 2006, I moved on to the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee. I became the speechwriter and communication director and somewhat of a climate researcher, although I'm not a scientist, although I do play one occasionally on TV. I started, uh, I had a memo when I first started. Now, there, you have to understand, I started in June of 2006. This was the low point, if you will, for anyone who considered themselves a skeptic of global warming and or the environmental movement. Al Gore's film had just come out. The United Nations 2007 report was, was coming out. Al Gore was just about to win a Nobel Peace Prize. Al Gore was about to win a, uh, a Oscar. This was a point where everyone had said, it, the debate is over. I mean, truly said, not just the rhetorically. They thought it was over, over. Republicans were terrified. The only one Republican senator who would speak on the issue was Senator Inhofe, who chaired the committee that I worked for from Oklahoma. And what happened was I came on board, and I, had a, and I actually had the memo that I saved still, and tried to outline a strategy. My message was one of hope because... The United Nations being the source of science on global warming, John Kerry had called it the gold standard of science, was not going to fly with the American people. And having Al Gore as the face of your movement, a man who is, whether you love him or hate him, he's a divisive political figure who, who, who uh, was involved in one of the closest presidential elections in U.S. history, that you're just never going to have, he's never going to coalesce any kind of, uh, other than partisan bickering and keep the issue partisan. So what we did is, we issued a call for scientists around the world, 
And my claim to fame, if you will, of being on that committee was being the author of these reports of dissenting scientists, which ultimately led to more than 1,000 dissenting scientists before I retired from that line of work, before I retired from collecting scientists from around the world. And this was the shot heard around the world. The first report we did in 2007, again, I just mentioned the height of the global warming hysteria, literally generated more media than you could possibly imagine all around the world on, on all the, on all, all the uh, cable news in Europe and Australia. This was the shot fired around the world. And once we did that report, even the rhetoric of people like Bill O'Reilly, which Fox News covered, it started to back off. And a lot of other Republicans... Soon, because we had the scientists in the, in the number of hundreds at that point, and they were, at one point they were coming out, I believe I estimated it was three scientists a week. Once we made news with our report, scientists from around the world continued to contact our Senate Environment Committee. And we took their statements and testaments and kept issuing updates and kept updating the reports uh, in, 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 by hundreds of numbers of scientists. And this was a huge deal because then this became the counter to all scientists agree. It became the counter to the UN IPCC. And that was the beginning of, if you will, the, the ragtag group of army. These scientists had never been put together. That and the Heartland Institute holding these, the first climate conference in that same year, 2007, I believe it was 2008, um, really brought the skeptics some kind of order that we were able to organize and start fighting back. And I think it didn't take much because once people realized that, that the Congress was going to pass cap and trade bills that would have no, not only would they have no climate impact, they wouldn't even have any CO2 impact. They wouldn't impact global CO2 as Obama's EPA administrator later admitted under, uh, you know, in, in Senate testimony. Once people realized these were all pure symbolism, these bills went down in flames and global warming, and then climate gate of course came along, but Global warming skepticism became the new political expediency, so much so that Lindsey Graham, who was co-sponsoring a bill with John Kerry, backed out and then later declared his skepticism. John McCain, who had championed two climate bills, later said yeah, he didn't trust the scientists and climate changed his view, and he backed away. It was a sea change that happened in Washington. I left the Senate in 2009 and then went and started Climate Depot. So how did you, how did you get the idea to do this? Because... No, I, I'm looking back then. I mean, I, I wasn't, I started getting really, really into it, I'd say in around 2007, so a little uh, after this. So I wasn't, I wasn't focused on it during, you know, the darkest part. But I do remember just as a, you know, more general consumer of news that people would say, yeah, you know, it has been settled. I remember reading an article by David Brooks, I forget exactly when, where he's just like, look, you know, for a while there was skepticism, but now it's been definitively demonstrated and da 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 And... So it was a huge deal for these, you know, for this more systematic movement to emerge. And in retrospect, there wasn't any. So did, was that all planned or how did, how, did, how did you think of this at the outset? Well, I thought about the outset because and doing this story as a journalist for years the, and going to all these UN conferences, I, I got to go um, all over the world. I got to go to uh, uh, Rio, uh, Buenos Aires, Bali, Kenya. Uh, just the most exotic locations, as well as many cities in Europe. And at all these conferences, that was their number one point, was that the science is settled, no scientists disagree. And actually, what may have given me the spark was uh, Al Gore comparing scientists who disagree with man-made global warming claims to those who thought the moon landing was staged or people who thought the earth was flat. Well, it turned out when those comments came, I got emails from senior scientists who said I was going to stay out of this debate. I was not going to get involved. 
But now that they've done this, I cannot, I can remain silent no longer. And they were so outraged. So they sort of, by, by claiming that, that, that there was this flat earth contingent, if you will, retired climatologists, people like Robert Durnberger at the time, who specifically uh, commented on that, they came out and got involved in this debate because they couldn't stand the demonization that was happening to them. So, and, 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 and it, just, it just seemed like a natural thing. This couldn't possibly make sense because every skeptical scientist I had talked to always said, many of my colleagues agree with me, but they have to remain silent because of the academic pressure. Uh, and if they're not tenured professors, they could lose their job. They'll be ridiculed. The, the university will frown upon them. Uh, and so I basically lifted up the challenge and started collecting the names and started, uh, we had Senator Inhofe announce it. Uh, that we were looking for the names as well as scientists to contact their office. So I just thought if we could get the silent majority, if you will, to start commenting, it would happen. And it was almost like if you build it, they will come. And they came. And it was a huge change of the terms of the debate. Uh, and, it was, and, it was, and it's still to, that, to this day. I mean, in fact, if you just take out like, the last three months, what's happened has been stunning. People like Leonard Begstead, former IPCC scientist, joins the Global Warming Skeptic Group, Global Warming Policy Foundation in UK, and then forced to resign because of the pressure. Judith Curry, who said she was a seven believer on a scale of one to ten, now as a three, dropped to a three, more skeptical. Just in the last few years, she's now testifying on behalf of Republicans. German meteorologists reversing course. James Lovelock, the UK uh, uh, Gaia, Gaia guru, if you will, the man who believes the Earth is a Home, uh, is a, uh, a living, breathing organism that essentially self-regulates itself as a hero to Greens, said there would only be a few breeding pairs of us left in 2006. He's now reversed himself completely, trashes the UN, retracted all his comments, says we don't have the physics worked out yet, we don't know, this has become a religion, I was too alarmist. On live BBC television, he talked about retracting all of his previous global warming claims. He's now what could be considered a full skeptic. And you know, I just had a, a I just interviewed Caleb Rossiter, the professor at American University, climate statistics professor, anti-war left-wing, uh, worked for Democratic uh, senators and congressmen, ran as a Democrat himself at one point. He is a huge global warming skeptic and announced this in a Wall Street Journal. He called global warming unproved science in early May. Two days later, he gets canned from his progressive think tank. They terminate their relations for, quote, diverging views. So just in the last couple months, it's been amazing the number of scientists, high profile, high caliber, who have had the guts to stand up, reverse themselves, and come out as skeptical, and they're paying the consequences. The intimidation is still there. The, the establishment does not like to, 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 uh, to tolerate dissent. Uh, so in terms of, of you know, the fruits of getting together people who are, who are marginalized and who don't have a voice and who might not feel like it's constructive for them to speak up and you know, putting them together and giving them a platform, uh, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the positive side of the issue because, as, as you know, I have the moral case for fossil fuels coming out. My focus has been more on the positive side. Fossil fuels improve the planet, all the benefits. And yet, you know, in the last couple of days as we record this, uh, all we hear in all of these reports are, are alleged negatives of fossil fuels and you have this kind of risky business uh, report coming out from, you know, a couple of billionaires, yeah. uh, by quote-unquote bipartisan. And one, one thing that's interesting is just that they only talk about alleged risks and not benefits. And yet this is the most, uh, arguably the most important technology in civilization. And, you know, there are lots of people out there inside and out inside academia, inside the energy industry, 
who know better and who don't speak up. So I'm wondering what advice you'd give others, but particularly me, for getting them together. Well, good question. Now, first of all, I, you're right. I, my, I'd say my work on this issue has been more reactive and more fighting the conventional wisdom. And instead of coming out, it would have been very hard to come out with just a positive message. In fact, in my original memo to the Senate when I came out with the idea of, I think it was in August of 2006, when I came out with the idea of doing the consensus-busting report, I actually said we should not go the positive route. We shouldn't at this point, because we were faced, it was, you know, we had, to, we had to fight on the defense at that point uh, in, in an important way, but I actually said we shouldn't be talking about the benefits of CO2 at this time because people will just dismiss it and say, oh, this has nothing to do with it. CO2 is the greatest enemy. Instead, we need to go back on the attack on every single point. So we, I was definitely much more reactive. Since that time, and I think your point is very valid, you have to have a positive agenda going forward. And I think one of the things we focus on now is just what I just mentioned, is CO2, far from being the boogeyman that people are fearing, in fact, Dennis Rancourt, another politically left scientist, a physicist from Canada, I believe it was Ottawa University, said it best, life loves warmth. And we can't be afraid of warmth. We can't be afraid uh, of... Uh, you know, in, in terms of acting as though the warmth is, is a bad thing. If you look at the planet Earth, life is thriving at the equator. The most plant, animal, and species are at the equator. As you move away from the equator, where it's the hottest, you get less and less to where you get to the poles, you get the least amount of biodiversity, the least amount of plant, animal, species. This uh, is a shocking revelation to many people that life craves warmth. So not only that, but we're also going through and ba talking about the basic physics. Patrick Moore testified to the U.S. Senate a couple months ago about how we've had ice ages in warmer periods with much higher CO2 levels, that the correlation isn't there. So we're going after the basics of this, and we're putting together a uh, coherent uh, strategy and a, um, I guess, a... I, a simple sell, if you will, as Ronald Reagan used to say, there's no easy answer to simple ones, but they're not necessarily easy. And the thing is, there's nothing to fear from CO2. The absurd part is when you get to the EPA regulations where they're claiming 400 parts per million uh, is now classifying CO2 as a pollutant as defined under the Clean Air Act. Well, humans inhale oxygen. We exhale 40,000 ppm of CO2. So that means all humans are... Uh, many times worse pollutants than what's in our atmosphere of CO2 right now. It just it defies basic logic. So I'm trying to build a positive message now with the, with the people who used to believe in man-made global warming and converted. I'm leading with them, and particularly the politically left. Again, James Lovelock, Philip Stott is another politically left scientist from the U.K. Judith Curry is an academic, certainly not affiliated with any right-wing think tanks or conservative thoughts or libertarian thought. It's amazing how many of them there are, because uh, that is where I think the future of this debate is. When people see more and more scientists and they hear the basic rational arguments, this is going to be a, uh, a, a winning issue, I think, for Republicans and for election issues and to fight the bureaucracy. Um, okay, well, I mean, the way I think of it often is, is when, you, you know, when you burn any hydrocarbon, you have three effects that or pertain to climate. There's the greenhouse effect, there's the fertilizer effect, and then there's the energy effect. And that is the ability of energy to build a durable environment to keep you safe from climate. And all the data we have shows that the energy matters far more than either of the others, certainly than the greenhouse effect. That is, every single trend of climate-related deaths, droughts, floods, 
storms. Um, not only are those fairly flat in terms of just an absolute sense, but you know, the, in the last eight years, in terms of the International Disaster Database, we have zero recorded drought-related deaths in the United States. So technology progressively makes these things less and less of a threat, and that has to be part of the story. In addition to just the need, you know, the desperate need uh, for energy, for cheap, reliable energy, and it seems like you know that's been my focus is the positive value of energy to improve life across the board, including our environment, including the livability of our climate. So I guess my, my question is getting, I think it is important for people to have an objective view of warmth and CO2 because those are things that are demonized purely because they involve a change, not because they involve a negative uh, change by these anti-industrial types. But there's also just an enthusiasm for the energy, what it has done for human life in the past 30 years and what it can continue to do. Yes. In fact, your uh, greatest line to me when you were on John Stossel's program past January was fossil fuels didn't take a stable climate and make it unstable. You said fossil fuels took, uh, took it was a, safe. Uh, it was made, safe. A, made the climate safe for people because it now, now they can survive all kinds of weather. And I think that's exactly the point. If you are worried, and this is what the, well, you'll see this in the pages in the New York Times, they're actually worried that the, somehow the climate's going to make future storms unstable and it's going to disproportionately Im impact the developing world. Well, the best, even if you believe that, that somehow storms are going to make, the warming is going to make storms worse, which the empirical evidence shows the opposite. It's actually during the cool periods that we have more extreme weather and actually more conflicts, by the way. It's not the warm periods used to be known as the medieval climate optimum. And think of that, it was an optimum time because it was warmth and thriving warmth and you had vineyards and expanding northward. And, um, but I think uh, the, 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 the key, I think I lost my thought on that. We were talking about your comment on fossil Oh, the, the more development the developing world has, the better they can handle whatever the weather, whatever the cause. And that is what gets so scary when you see all these proposals. You know, you see the, the, trying to limit any kind of car, uh, coal plants in Africa. You can see the development limitations they've tried to get India to sign on to. At one point, the Indian environmental minister announced that when 40, nearly 40% 40 of the residents don't have running water and electricity, they're not going to sign on to any emission-limiting treaty by the United Nations. Uh, you have uh, in Africa, you have uh, people screaming for development, and you have all kinds of shenanigans going on from European Union, which isn't even allowing, you know, if an African country tries to allow genetically modified food, they cut off trade with them. There's sort of a bullying, what people are calling a neo-colonialism, hitting Africa. They're telling them how they should develop. I interviewed Leon Lowe uh, of the Libertarian uh, Development Think Tank in uh, South Africa just in 2012 when I was there, and he was very blunt. He said, until the wealthy Western nations are willing to level Washington, D.C., Rotterdam, London, and Paris back to swamps, jungles, and wetlands, we had no business telling Africans how they can develop, what natural resources they can use. And I think that's a positive message, especially when it comes to energy. Allow people the right of self-determination. Allow them to use their natural resources as they see fit. One of the last acts I did was in the Senate. I met with, I believe it was a Norwegian delegation. It's either Swedish or Norwegian. Uh, who came and they were they were promoting carbon credits and the idea that um, they wanted the United States Congress to look into getting this you know more into the U.S. and uh, the idea when you when you use certain amounts of energy you would buy credits that would set aside land in Africa in poor nations that you couldn't develop. So, in other words, if 
uh, you can buy these credits through these firms. The Hollywood celebrities have done it. They get forests that are preserved in Uganda. The more they fly, the more people in Africa can't develop their own land because more and more land is set aside. At least that's the idea behind it. Of course, these are rife with corruption. But even the principle, I told the Norwegian delegation, I hope you fail because the last thing poor nations need are the guilt of white, wealthy Westerners telling them they can't now use their natural resources because they've been set aside, or worse yet, some kind of financial stipend through climate aid or climate justice, so-called climate justice aid, has been given to corrupt third world dictators in order that, so that they don't develop their land in certain ways. But, you know, this is a battle when people see the evil, if you will, if they use that word evil, uh, or the, um, the perverse perversity of denying poor people energy because the earth, quote, can't handle it. Well, they themselves enjoy all the benefits of the, of the modern Western nations. The hypocrisy angle is huge, and that is a very positive message to deliver uh, to people around the world, and that really resonates. It's one of the Achilles heel, probably one of the biggest Achilles heels, that hypocrisy, uh, and I, I, get, I get everything from me, and you guys get, you know, you only get, you can't make the same mistakes. You have to learn from our mistakes, and we will we will uh, dictate how you, how you develop your nations. That is a, the form of colonialism which is insidious. You could argue the first wave of colonialism we had was actually beneficial in many ways, aside from the, uh, the horror, but we, we brought you know, modern, uh, modern systems, modern medicine, infrastructure to a lot of poor nations. Well, this, is, this new colonialism is bringing nothing but deprivation, destruction, and maybe you'll get solar panels on huts made of dung, but they don't want you to have in modern infrastructure. Yeah, just one thing I'd, I'd add to that with, you know, hypocrisy, there's always an assumption when, when you say something is, is hypocritical, you know, one side is moral, uh, one aspect of it is morally good and one is morally bad. And one thing I like to emphasize is that the aspect that's morally good is that these people, you know, these celebrities or whatever, that they have created wealth and that they're using it to enjoy their lives. So, you know, you know, so I'll tell them, look, my problem is not that you fly. It's that you want to prevent me from flying or you want to prevent, you know, certainly, you know, someone in Africa from even uh, having a buggy. And I think that that goes to this is a broader issue than environmental stuff, but just the whole scourge of multiculturalism, which is really just an attack on, you know, it's saying all cultures are equal, except ours is immoral yeah. and inferior, you know, which is, again, just hatred uh, of the good. But what about our right to our culture? What about our culture's achievements? Nobody's seen, I, I, I think, you know, Ayn Rand once had the line like, you know, a clay pot is considered a great achievement, a plastic cup isn't. But why not? I mean, we, we do amazing things. and Right, what's more it, impressive, you're right, when you think about everything that goes into making a plastic cup. That's well, exactly. and how, how it functions, and you even see in Africa, yeah. you, have, you have people with plastic bottles who are able to carry water much more efficiently and safely, uh, you know, than somebody who has to have a giant uh, clay jug. So I think, you know, I, I have on my Twitter feed, uh, you know, I help oil companies with their self-esteem issues. Uh, but really, I help humanity with its self-esteem issues because, you know, we are the best of, you know, our, our culture is the furthest progression of human reason and human technology and human development. And I think part of it is, you know, the glorify, part of glorifying that is is recognizing others' right to pursue it. And part of it is is appreciating what we have done and having enthusiasm for what we can continue to do. And that, that lack of a truly progressive enthusiasm, I think, is a big a big hole, but something that, that we can exploit. Yeah, and no one needs uh, the self-esteem training better than the than the uh, 
carbon-based fuel operators and owners today because they're just taking a beating and they seem to be allowing it. You know, I've always said, and I actually got to give this speech in 2012 at the Rio Earth Summit uh, to the United Nations. We actually rented a room, and I got to say that carbon-based energy has been one of the greatest liberators of mankind in the history of our planet. Uh, Life used to be short, nasty, brutish, and short, and now this has delivered us. Far from demonizing it, we should be, like, praising it. And, of course, you can imagine how well this went over at this UN Earth Summit. But that's the message people need to hear. And I think pe- when people hear that, they intuitively understand it. Far, and, 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 and the biggest thing we're facing now, and President Obama has done this masterfully, and is with these, with these executive orders to the EPA, and a, a Wall Street Journal poll showed how well this is working, they're conflating carbon pollution, carbon, you know, carbon dioxide, they're calling it carbon pollution, with other pollutants that would cause asthma and particulate matter yeah. and other things. And they're showing, and the American Lung Association, which received money from EPA, is doing ads with babies in a crib, you know, basically implying that this is going to save you know, babies' lives and everything. And so the American public, and that's why a majority, according to the Wall Street Journal poll, which I tend to believe, because it's not, you know, it's, there's a lot of polling out there I don't, which is, uh, is just way off, but I think Gallup and Pew and these, these have been, uh, and the Wall Street Journal have been accurate. They're showing a majority support it because they think it's basically clean air regulations. And to the extent that they've conflated those two, this is probably the greatest achievement in the entire global warming debate by any side. Uh, you know, I would argue skeptics have won literally every battle since Kyoto because we never allowed Kyoto to be ratified. We defeated cap and trade in 2003, 2005, 2008, 2009, and ultimately in 2010. We prevented carbon taxes. It's like the Vietnam War. We won every single battle for the platoon level up, but we may lose the war. We might be losing it at this moment with these EPA regulations because I would argue that future Republican presidents, much like Obamacare is now codified, they'll never repeal it, will never reverse the EPA regulations. Uh, can you imagine a President Romney reversing it? I doubt it. He, would have, he, he had Gina McCarthy uh, as one of his advisors on his staff. He had John Holdren as one of his staff. Which, can you imagine uh, Governor Christie? He had Christie? Holdren, really? He had Holdren as an advisor, yes. Well, can you imagine Governor Christie reversing EPA regulations? Why would he? Governor Christie's own EPA director just praised Obama's climate regulations about three weeks ago when they came out. Can you imagine Jeb Bush being one? I don't think so. Can you imagine Marco Rubio? I don't think so. Marco Rubio is a deer in the headlight when it comes to this. He makes a statement and then spends a week backtracking. Very few Republicans. Rand Paul is very strong on this. Rick Santorum is strong on the climate issue. But there's very few, and Ted Cruz is very strong on this. But I would say the majority of the candidates running are going to be very weak. Why did we have five former Republican EPA administrators come out and basically endorse Obama's EPA plan? Well, it's not a question of how solid the science is or how good the policy is. It's a reflection of how poorly Republican presidents deal with environmental issues by picking lame-ass EPA chiefs. That's what they've done here. I mean, whether it's the first George Bush, the second George Bush, you couldn't get worse candidates running our EPA and in charge of this. Republicans tend to not, not to want to deal with environmental issues. So they literally just say, I'm, gonna, I, I get, I'm not going to waste political capital on that issue. So they usually pick someone left of center, and they just let them go. And this is what happened with George W. Bush. I argue he did much more damage than President Obama did when it came to this issue. George W. Bush stamped the United Nations climate reports, continued the funding of all these science societies and former Gore staffers coming on, allowed James Hansen to run amok at NASA. Uh, and then, 
you know, this is, and then of course he paid complete support of all the global warming science. He never challenged it once. He was a, he was a full believer in global warming skeptics from the Oval Office. That is devastating. I don't see the next one or two Republican presidents, if we ever get them, being anyone different than George W. Bush, possibly worse. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is you want to be optimistic. I'd like to be optimistic. But as I look forward here in these EPA regulations, I don't see Republican. If a Republican president rolls it back, they may roll back 50% of them, or they may make this, the goals so weak that they're irrelevant for a time, but I don't see them taking them off the books, and I see a next Democratic president ratcheting them back up. And I think this is how big government advances. You know, if, I remember the Howard Phillips, who used to run the Conservative Caucus, resigned from the Nixon administration. So if you look at the 20th century, every president, regardless of their ideology, essentially governed to the left of the previous presidents with the exception being probably Ronald Reagan's first term, um, and maybe Bill Clinton's second term. I, I would argue, Alex, we're a little bit off topic here, but I would argue that Bill Clinton's second term was probably the greatest period of peace and prosperity in a way for the 20th century of all presidential terms because we were in total gridlock. We had a, a Democrat, Republican Congress and Democratic president. We had 75 cent a gallon gas. I vividly recall that about 1999 in Virginia. And we had the government tied up with a sex scandal, so not, not much was getting done otherwise, and they were worried, obsessed over the president's sex scandal. I thought it was one of the greatest times as an example of how partisanship is the greatest friend of liberty. Because if Republican presidents oppose proposed big government liberty-killing proposals, Republicans will go along with it because they have to support their president. If a, if a Democrat does it, they'll oppose it on partisan grounds. So you actually want split houses, and you want partisanship to come in because gridlock is the greatest friend to, to liberty as well all right that's a lot to think about so we are out of time but before uh just as a last thing what any projects you want to tell listeners about or anywhere they should read your stuff yes i'll be coming out to have an announcement very soon at the las vegas skeptics global warming conference uh coming out with a new multimedia project relating to global warming and if you can always, they can check out climatedepot.com and from there go to Energy Depot. It's actually energydepot.us. We haven't got the .com moniker yet. But uh, I'm, I'm going forward here. This is going to be a, a battle royale in, uh, with these EPA regulations. I don't expect much help from the courts. I don't expect any defunding efforts of the EPA in Congress. Um, but this is going to be a huge public relations thing to convince people that CO2 is not equal, quote, carbon pollution, unquote, and has nothing to do with asthma, has nothing to do with you know, childhood illnesses, has nothing to do with um, lung diseases, as, as they're trying to do. And that, that's a huge challenge, probably the greatest challenge that's befallen us in opposing these regulations. All right. So, yeah, we'll give some thought here and uh, talk to others about how to counter that. Mark's, Mark, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Alex. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Mark Morano for coming on the show. Now, Mark uh, alluded on the show to a project, which he didn't announce, but now that I'm way late posting this, so we can announce it. It's called Climate Hustle. If you go to climatehustle.org, you can check it out. Check out uh, the preview. You know, they have pretty ambitious fundraising goals because I think they want to create a professional product. So it looks like they're at 51,000 out of 250,000, uh, which is a good start, and you can definitely help them looks like gifts are tax deductible. Um, I mentioned this at the outset, well, sort of I mentioned it at the outset, but my, my takeaway, one of my takeaways 
uh, from Mark. And this is related to a takeaway I had way back when, when we interviewed Craig Rucker from CFACT, is just reinforces to me the importance of getting out there, being on the ground, no matter ex what exactly your position. Uh, I've become somewhat known for going out and debating people, whether it be on TV, whether it be literally on the street, whether it be at universities, and in general, just engaging people. And Mark, Mark does that. Mark, Mark was with us at our Light Brigade event in the cold, the freezing cold global warming rally that we counter-protested or counter-educated. And you know, he's he's on the ground now. That's that's his thing in a sense. But he gets it, it. It it gives him a connection to the reality of the debate and how people think about it. That I think. Um, Anyone, anyone needs, even if they're not as much on the ground as their their primary activities. That's one thing I take from Mark. It reminds me, okay, I got to get back on the streets, got to go uh, to this New York rally in September, get some footage, um, engage people. You can never lose that uh, that contact with with the pulse of the issue. And the other thing that's related is just just taking taking action and taking high leverage action. Mark talked about. The evolution of this and how he and, and just a few others really brought a group of scientists who had been marginalized and intimidated and, and didn't have a voice and, and gave them the, the, the tools and the networking um, and the exposure to bring much, much more rationality to the debate. Now, the establishment does not like that, but that, well, there's no but about that at all from our perspective. That's a, um, it, it's a very good thing. And you see just how by being by being on an action premise and by being strategic, you can make that happen. So I think there's a lot to learn um, from that. I think there's a lot to learn from how the Heartland Institute uh, does things. I've thought about uh, what what can CIP do in that vein. Definitely the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which you can get on Amazon, which we'll be promoting a lot more in the upcoming weeks and months. I think that's that's the biggest thing I know how to do right now. Uh, but you know, in the future. I think there's going to be, and that book will make this possible, a lot more networking among the advocates of energy, figuring out ways to get together, to empower one another, to support one another. Um, you know, I, th I think we can take a leadership role, or it's not the most important to lead or not, but simply just to make sure that it's it's being led in one form or another and participate in one form or another. Uh, so. I think there's a lot to learn from Mark, hopefully, you know, in addition to just all of the, the history that he has to tell, which, which stems from all of the action that he's taken. So thanks again to Mark. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Well, with that, we will wrap up the show. As always, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, email me at alex at industrialprogress.net. Make sure to sign up for Power Hour and now also Power Surge, which is included with Power Hour on iTunes. And... Let's see what else. Well, again, the book, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, you can order on Amazon. Every pre-order helps. That helps our first week uh, presence on the bestseller list. Definitely want to get there and, and then, you know, from that generate a lot of buzz and, and hopefully keep it on the bestseller list uh, for, for many, many weeks. So um, going to can't promise right now that next week we'll have another great guest, another great show. If we do have a show, it'll be a great guest and a great show. Still still getting back into the rhythm of doing this and doing Forbes columns and those kinds of things. But uh, A, we will get back to that. And B, I think when you when you see the book, you'll see that it'll be worth the wait. And I think you'll see the, um, 
how much new content there is in terms of both just much more clarifying ways of thinking about things and also just new data that you won't find anywhere else and that you haven't found in any of our, our previous work. So excited about that. Uh, and with that, whenever, well, no matter what, uh, keep listening to, to Power Surge and we will get Power Hour back on track. And I hope you enjoyed this one. So until next time, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.